Welcome to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. C.F.W. Walther was a parish pastor, later professor and first president of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. He was also the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. These sermons were preached from 1840 to 1870, predominantly in congregations of the St. Louis area. Unfortunately, we do not know the specific dates and locations of most of these sermons as they have been lost to time. These sermons were originally preached and published in German and translated by Donald Heck. They're available in two volumes from Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. Thank you for listening. The sixth Sunday after Trinity, Matthew 5, 20 to 26. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Amen. In our Savior, dear hearers, if we want to be saved, a change must first take place in us. In our natural state, we are not fit for the kingdom of God. We dare not suppose, however, that God has created us this way. God is wisdom love, and omnipotence itself. Everything he creates must be perfect, without any blemish or defect. It is impossible that man came from the hand of God, just as he is now, comes into the world. The darkness, which by nature lives in our heart, and the sinful inclinations that by nature rule our will, cannot possibly have been implanted in us by the Holy Spirit. God could not have created man evil and then commanded him to battle the evil in us if he wants to be saved. Reason tells us this, and the Holy Scripture removes all doubt. The Holy Scriptures not only say, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, Genesis 1. It especially states, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Originally, man was absolutely perfect. His understanding was a bright light. His will was God's will. His whole being mirrored God's image in body and soul. The reflection of God's wisdom shone in his understanding. The counterpart of God's goodness, long-suffering, and patience shone in man's mind. The image of divine love and mercy in the feelings of his heart. Holiness in man's will and friendliness and truth in man's desires, attitude, and speech. Neither in the members of his body nor in his soul did one evil desire arise. Man longed for God with all his being, as for his greatest good. All the powers of man were in the most perfect harmony. There was no discord. His reason was subject to God, his will subject to his reason, and his desire subject to his will. In short, Man was in the state of purest innocence. He was such a bright reflection of God that man could recognize God in himself. And God, in turn, delighted in man as in his image, as a father in his laughing child. Man was happy in his God and creator. He was blessed, full of peace and rest. No fear, no fright, no sorrow entered his heart. But who can fully describe the blessedness of man in the state of innocence? We speak of this as those speak of the beauty of light, 
who have lived their whole life in darkness. That was the golden age of humanity. Alas, how short this blessed time lasted. Man was like the son of David, of whom we read, In all Israel there was no one such to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. Second Samuel 14 Yet as Absalom was not satisfied with his beauty, but coveted his father's throne and rebelled against him, so man was not satisfied with his implanted glory. He wanted to be like God. Finally, he willfully transgressed God's holy command, rebelling boldly and insolently against his Lord, Creator, and Father. Thus, man hurled himself from his blessed height into the dreadful pit of sin, darkness, death, and damnation. He lost the image of God and became a reflection of the prince of darkness. As a man would have transmitted his implanted glory to his children, had he not fallen, so now his sin, with its misery, descends from generation to generation to the last person who will be born. Is there no way back to the paradise fallen man lost? Yes, my friends, God, who is eternal joy, has out of infinite mercy prepared a way. It is that we be renewed again to the lost righteousness for which we have been created. Permit me to speak to you now of this righteousness. Matthew five twenty to 26 Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come quickly to offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So far our text. My friends, this gospel is not like the gentle dew which trickles down softly upon languishing hearts. It is, a, it is glorious like a torrential rain which comes among the flashing of lightning and the roll of thunder. At first, it threatens to devastate all fields and uproot all the trees. But afterwards, all pastures which are touched by it become green, bloom, and send forth fragrance like a new creation. Oh, that this gospel might show itself in the hearts of us all. On the basis of this gospel, permit me to speak to you of the righteousness without which one cannot enter heaven. What sort of righteousness it is, how one receives it, and how it becomes clear that one has received it. Lord God, Heavenly Father, you are love. You have not only created all men for eternal life, but even now, after we have fallen, you have no pleasure in the death of one sinner. You have reopened your kingdom of heaven to all. You are, however, also holy. 
You have prescribed a holy way on which we should go and by which alone we can reach heaven. We therefore pray, guard us, that none dare to meet his fateful eternity upon a way he has chosen himself. Help each one to accommodate himself to your holy ordinance. Enlightened and led by your Holy Spirit, may he set foot on the way you have prepared and continue on it faithfully until the end. Lord, hear us, and to this end, bless your word for your own eternal love's sake. Amen. Certainly, everyone who still believes in God and a life after death admits that some kind of righteousness is necessary to enter heaven. Conscience tells everyone that he could not enter heaven through sin and unrighteousness. Yet what do most think is that righteousness with which they hope to be admitted into heaven? One might suppose he can enter heaven if he lives a moral life or leads a generally useful life. Another supposes he can do so if he is religious, if he prays diligently, goes to church, and remains with Christians. A third supposes he can enter heaven if he guards himself as much as possible from at least gross sins and vices. A fourth, who is one of the wicked, supposes he can earn eternal life if, despite all his transgressions and evil life, he can point to some good. In short, most men suppose that if they have fulfilled God's law to the extent of their weak powers, then they, who wish to be taken up into heaven, would have that righteousness which God demands. Now, what does Christ say? In great earnestness, he calls out in our text, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And with this, Christ hurls to the ground all the thoughts of those who think they can stand before God on their own power. For what did the scribes and Pharisees do? all of whom Christ, with these words, excludes from heaven. As far as it was in their powers, they sought to fulfill the law as it read. What is that better righteousness which Christ speaks of in verse 20? He himself shows us in the following words, adding, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Christ means to say that if a person wishes to have a righteousness with which he can stand before God, it is not enough that he only outwardly fulfills the law to some extent, that he does not kill with his fist, nor commit adultery with his body, nor steal with his hands, nor speak false witness with his mouth, serve God and his neighbor with his body, and the like. No, Christ means to say the law is spiritual. It has a spiritual meaning. The law concerns the spirit. It demands the heart. It demands the whole man with his thoughts, words, and deeds before God. Only he who has fulfilled the law according to its true spiritual meaning, even its sternest demands, without any stain or the least defect, is righteous according to the law. That Christ actually understands this as the only righteousness which is valid in God's eyes, we see from the little word for, which begins our text. This word points back to the preceding because it contains the reason. 
Immediately preceding our text, Christ says this in Matthew 5, 17-19, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then, when Christ says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What kind of righteousness can Christ mean other than a perfect fulfillment of God's law? Now, my friends, the law forbids all sins and says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. James 2. If the law can accuse a person of being guilty of only one sin, he is not righteous before God. The world says, One word won't kill you. But the law says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, Matthew 12. If the law can accuse one of being guilty of merely a careless word, he is not righteous before God. The world says, thoughts are tax-free. But the law says, the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, 1 Corinthians 4 whom the law can accuse of evil counsel, evil thoughts, or of having sinful desires, lusts, and incitements, he is also not righteous before God. The law says, You shall love the Lord your God above all things, and your neighbor as yourself. Luke 10. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. 1 Corinthians 16. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 1 John 3. If the law can accuse one of having loved something more than God himself, more than his brother, or even hated him, he is also not righteous before God. The law says, So, whoever knows the right thing to do but fails to do it, for him it is sin. James 4. If the law can accuse one of omitting something which he could have done, he is also not righteous before God. Finally, the law says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Leviticus 19. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5. If the law can accuse one of not being holy and pure, of not being completely perfect, he is also not righteous before God. There you see the righteousness which Christ means when he says, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. To be sure, many will say, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? However harsh it may appear, it is irrefutably true and certain. God is holy and unchangeable. He must demand a perfect righteousness of everyone who is to enter heaven. God can sooner destroy heaven and earth then repeal his law and change his will, which he has expressed in it. He has said, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He has said, 
Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Galatians 3. And he must stick to this into all eternity. You will say, who can be saved according to this teaching? Who can acquire the righteousness God demands of us? Must not every person despair completely of being able to enter heaven? I answer no. Let us now, in the second place, hear how a person can acquire that righteousness which avails before God. The first thing we must bear in mind is that through the works of the law, no person can acquire the perfect righteousness God demands. Yes, the law reveals the righteousness God demands, but it does not give us the power to acquire it. It shows us our death, but it does not make us alive. Paul says to the Galatians, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Galatians 3.21 Everyone who has tried to make himself righteous before God by being diligent in good works, by piety, by a complete withdrawal from the world, by prayers, by fasting, vigils, and all manner of painful self-inflicted torment, has engaged in a work which is always in vain. No one can change his heart himself since it is by nature corrupt, inclined to sin, and full of sinful lusts and desires. It is also impossible to be as completely pure as God demands. Even the threats of his eternal displeasure cannot change our nature. The apostle therefore writes of the whole Jewish nation, Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Romans 9 and 10. Not only did the hypocritical Pharisees and scribes and the poor ignorant people vainly seek for a valid righteousness by their own works, but those who were in earnest sought just as vainly. Fallen David not only had to cry out, Enter not into judgment with your servant, but also added, For no one living is righteous before you. Psalm 143. Even Job, of whom God's word says, That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Job 1. Even he had to say, How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Job 25. If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. Job 9. Isaiah makes the same statement. He says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like polluted garment. Isaiah 64. And as the saints in Scripture speak, so do all the saints of all times. When even the martyrs climbed the pyre for the sake of Christ and his truth, they could not boast of their own piety and holiness. In the midst of the flames, they also had to commend themselves to divine mercy, because they were sinners. Even St. Bernard, who had led an exemplary life from his youth up, had to cry out on his deathbed, Perdite vixi! I have lived a damnable life. How can a poor, weak, sinful man acquire a righteousness that avails before God? Our gospel shows us the way. Faith in Jesus Christ. 
Yes, whoever despairs of his own righteousness, all his works, all his volition, ability, running, and chasing, and believes in Christ, who perfectly fulfilled the law for all men, and by his innocent suffering and death, bore and atoned for their sins, God graciously absolves him from all his sins. God acts as though he had fulfilled the law as perfectly as Christ himself. Whoever believes in Christ, though he may be head over heels in debt to God, has in the gospel a receipt in full which God himself has given. Whoever believes in Christ, though he may have no good work which he can present to God, has in the life, suffering, and death of his Savior a merit of such value that God himself will not condemn him. Before all angels and creatures, he must declare him completely righteous. In short, whoever believes in Christ has that righteousness which exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees without which no one can enter heaven. This teaching is contained in the Holy Scripture so clearly, clearly that only a blind person cannot find it. We read even of Abraham, he believed the Lord, and he counted it unto him as righteousness. Genesis 15. All the sermons of the prophets show how God himself is our righteousness. If we start with the New Testament, where we should begin, where, we sh where should we end? If we wanted to mention all the passages which speak of that true righteousness, which alone justifies by grace through Christ. Paul, the great hero of righteousness by grace, says, There is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans 3. Oh, how happy are all poor sinners who, tired of having vainly sought rest, peace, and righteousness by their own works, finally seize Christ in faith and say to him, Lord, I'm a sinner, but you are holy for me. My life and suffering is nothing but unrighteousness. Your life and suffering is my righteousness. They can joyfully and confidently turn to the whole world and even to God's law, boldly dare it to accuse them, and mockingly say to sin, death, and hell, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justified. Who is he to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Romans 8. Hallelujah. Though every sinner can easily acquire the righteousness that avails before God, yet he can also just as easily imagine that he has found this greatest treasure without really owning it. Among those who still consider the Bible as true, there will certainly be only a few who do not believe that they are righteous before God through Christ. Whoever deceives himself in this is a thousand times more happy than a manifest sinner who knows that he has absolutely nothing to do with Christ. There are, however, certain signs which make it clear who has that imputed righteousness. Permit me to make a few marks on, remarks on these signs. It is certain that he who has seized Christ as his righteousness no longer works, as Paul says. He seeks no worthiness, comfort, or righteousness in his works. 
It is just as certain that he who has the righteousness of faith is also zealous in the righteousness of life, not by compulsion, but of a free heart, not in the hope of a reward, but out of heartfelt, thankful love toward God, not for his own honor, but in order to honor God and his Savior, who has done such great things for him, forgiven him all his sins, and has clothed him in the garment of his innocence. As soon as a person believes this, his faith becomes a heavenly seed for a new divine life. It brings the Holy Spirit, who now reprimands the least sinful incitement. The Spirit fights against sin and thus drives the will of man to do good works. If God's harsh law is preached to him, he does not oppose it when it uncovers his sins. He does not deny and excuse them, but confesses them and prays for forgiveness. Nor does he try to reject the stern demands of the law and, as it were, dull its edge. But he immediately surrenders himself to it. He is ready to die rather than knowingly and willfully do something which may or may not be sinful. Luther very beautifully describes the nature of faith thus. Faith, however, is a divine work in us which changes us and makes us to be born anew of God. John 1. It kills the old Adam and makes us altogether different men in heart and spirit and mind and powers. It brings with it in the Holy Spirit. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done them, and is constantly doing them. You see, this shows who has that righteousness that avails before God. One can speak beautifully of faith and righteousness and dispute concerning his Christian freedom, but if he does not produce the fruits, he only deceives himself and will not pass the test. Moreover, Christ gives us an important example when he, at the close of our text, says, So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Christ shows us how he who is righteous in Christ by grace is minded. He is zealous not only in the service of God, but he also has a tender heart for his brethren. He even considers all his worship in vain, if his neighbor can accuse him. Yes, he goes after his neighbor and seeks to be reconciled with him, even if he did not offend his neighbor, but his neighbor offended him. Examine yourselves, then, in this light, my dear friends. Do you merely say that Christ is your righteousness? Can you produce these signs which show that you speak the truth? Do you bring those fruits which never or are omitted where true faith is? Or do you gladly hear of faith and grace, but not of its fruits? Do you wish to do something, but not that which is too heavy a cross for your flesh, whereby the old Adam, so to say, is cut to the quick? Do you want to pay tithes of mint and anise and cumin, and omit the weightier matters of the law? Do you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel? Where is your dread of sin? Where is your denial of the world and its vanity? Where is your tender conscience? Where is your love for God's honor and your neighbor? 
Where is your zeal for reconciling yourself with him who has offended you? It is true that in this life, Christians reap only the first fruits of the Spirit. They are not yet completely spirit. They still have flesh and blood that strives against the Spirit. But the Christian at least struggles. His flesh does not get control. Do you struggle against yourself? Do you daily bring at least a few signs of victory from your conflict? Ah, may no one go to Christ just for show. May everyone accept him wholeheartedly. Whoever will appear before God without Christ in his own righteousness will not stand. He will experience what Christ says at the end of our gospel. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. From this, preserve us, dear Lord Jesus, for the sake of the complete payment you made. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. You've been listening to Classic Lutheran Preaching, C.F.W. Walther. These sermons are available in two volumes as a part of Walther's Works, Concordia Publishing House, St. Louis, Missouri, cph.org. We thank you for tuning in, and we pray that God's Word has and will continue to be a great blessing in your life.